My name is Karen Steenhoff. I have uh, been a raptor research biologist for a long time, but I retired from the federal government in 2008. I might have ended up being a bighorn sheep biologist. It was a case where the fish and game person, or division of wildlife person, said, give me your best man for this job. And the professor gave him my name instead of a man. And they wrote back and said, I'm sorry, but no, we can't hire a woman in this position. It was very blatant. Karen's is one of the first female voices that we've heard in this story about the creation of a protected area in the Snake River Canyon. But despite the sexism that she experienced early in her career, she would go on to become one of the most prominent biologists working in Southwest Idaho. Steenhoff, along with her research colleague Mike Cokert, were introduced to the Snake River Canyon in the 1970s and became key players in the effort to scientifically document the need for expanding the boundary of the Snake River Canyon natural area. So I came out as a graduate student in spring of 1977. There had already been two years of radio telemetry data. They had found that prairie falcons were ranging way beyond the canyon. Mike Cokert arrived in southwest Idaho in 1970 when he took over John Beecham's Golden Eagle research project, the same research that had been used to justify the designation of the Snake River Birds of Prey natural area. I remember driving out to the study area looking out at that vast desert thinking, well, what am I doing here? That was in March. By August, I was a full-fledged desert rat, and I haven't left it. I've been there ever since. And there's something that's really magical about the desert. Both Cokert and Steenhoff were transplants from the eastern U.S., but they both immediately fell in love with the canyonlands of southwestern Idaho. I think I still was kind of a person who had grown up mostly around trees, so the openness was, it, it, it has to grow on you. Now I need openness. I have to have openness. Uh, one of the, you know, first people that I interacted with when I first came to the study area was Morley Nelson. During that first season, uh, we, I spent a lot of time at Morley's house. And that was one thing that was really, uh, that stuck with me that year and, and for all the 30 years that I knew Morley, is that you felt very comfortable at Morley's place. But, you know, I learned a lot just hanging out with the, you know, the, the Nelson boys and with Morley and all the uh, raptor files that came to the place. Cokert had arrived in southwest Idaho to begin his master's research just over a year before the designation of the Snake River Birds of Prey Natural Area. And this designation, along with the arrival of Steenhoff and a whole new crop of young, eager raptor biologists, had set the stage for the next chapter in the canyon's history. Morley Nelson and Governor Cecil Andrus had already set their sights on expanding the protected area to include the raptors' hunting grounds, but neither of them could have predicted the battle that would ensue over the coming decade. I had no idea at that point in time the magnitude of, the, uh, of what we were going to create. That was the late Cecil Andrus himself in an interview recorded to Microcassette in the year 2000 by Morley's biographer Steve Stubner. 
Cecil Andrus had been elected governor of Idaho in 1970 and quickly became a key political ally of Morley Nelson, setting the stage for a truly unique partnership that would connect scientific research to politics in a manner not seen before or since. It was a great friendship. It was a good working relationship together with Morley doing the lead and Dad doing the assist. They were able to make it happen. I'm Tracy Andrus. I'm the middle daughter of former Idaho governor and former secretary of the interior, Cecil D. Andrus. You're listening to Common Land, produced by the Wild Lens Collective and Radio Boise, with support from the Bureau of Land Management, the Birds of Prey NCA Partnership, the Archives of Falconry, and a grant from Patagonia. I'm your host, Matt Podolsky. Common Land explores the untold stories behind protected areas. The show will explore the often complex realities behind the establishment of protected areas from all around the globe. In season one, we are telling the creation story behind the Morley Nelson Snake River Birds of Prey National Conservation Area, a protected area in southwest Idaho that was set aside to conserve birds of prey. I was up at the University of Idaho trying to get a degree and trying to figure what I was going to do with the rest of my life. And and matter of fact, once I got my thesis done, I was working as a roofer. And it was kind of nice not to have to use my brain, just just to work in manual labor. It was May, late May, around Memorial Day. Coker realized while working up on a rooftop in Moscow, Idaho, that there had already been six consecutive years of Golden Eagle banding and monitoring in the Snake River Canyon. There was nobody else set to conduct this research that year, so unless he did something, the research would stop. Here we are in our seventh year, nobody's going to be down there banding eagles. Nobody looked at them, and I couldn't take it anymore, so I jumped off the roof, grabbed my string of bands, told my boss I was going to be back in a week, and headed down to, to the... Uh, to the canyon and uh, started banding eagles. I remember staying at a friend of mine's place, but their phone rang at two in the morning. I'm staying at somebody's house and it's ringing on the wall and for some reason I didn't want, I thought, well, I better answer this thing because everybody's in bed. And it was the state biologist for the BLM in, 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 in Boise here. And he, he basically said, and here I am half awake, he said, you want a job? This floored me. Two in the morning, and how he knew where I was staying and how he got that number, I have no idea. Next thing you know, I'm the first biologist for the for the BLM to uh, do the work in, in what is now the NCA. Cokert never learned how that state biologist knew where he was staying or why he had reached out to him at two o'clock in the morning, but he enthusiastically accepted the job. Then, basically, the BLM asked that we s- submit a proposal that would identify the needed research for establishing the spatial requirements and the overall habitat requirements of the raptors in this unique stretch of the river. And so we submitted that proposal and it got funded. And work began in 1975. 
They had set up a study area in 1975 based on the best available guesses on how far a prairie falcon would range from its nest to forage, or a prairie falcon or a golden eagle. Well, it turned out that prairie falcons needed to go much farther. I, it, it, we were under a lot of pressure to do a lot in a short time frame, that's for sure. Yeah, the pressure kind of came from Dean Bibles, I think, who kept asking us to come up with data. We had to put a hole in the roof of a Jeep station wagon to have a big old antenna to, to track where these birds were going. The very first female prairie falcon that we radio telemetered takes off and goes 13 miles. Picks up a ground squirrel, takes it back, drops it, comes back. And, uh, of course, about tore up the Jeep trying to catch up to where the darn thing was going. <laughs> but but uh, after some studies, uh, we saw that they weren't going south of the river at all. They were all coming north. I'm Dean Bibles. In 1975, I was selected to come to Boise as the district manager of the VLM. While research was beginning to show the biological boundary to the scientists, an incredibly important piece of legislation was making its way through Congress. FLIPMA, Federal Land Management Policy Act, signed into law by Ford, October 1976. The Federal Lands Policy and Management Act serves as a landmark for anyone and everyone involved in public land management. It phased out the homesteading acts, ending the long-standing policy of granting federal lands to private citizens, and initiated a new era of multiple use, management of the public lands and their various resource values so that they are utilized in the combination that will best meet the present and future needs of the American people. The doctrine that has driven policy and management decisions related to public lands ever since. Just weeks after FLIPMA was signed into law, Jimmy Carter was elected President of the United States, an outcome of great consequence for then-Idaho Governor Cecil Andrus, as his daughter, Tracy Andrus, explains. We knew um, that it was possible that the then-President-elect would come talk to Dad. They had been freshman governors together. They had um, really liked each other and viewed environmental policy similarly. But I was diagnosed with Hodgkin's disease when I was 19 in 1975. Right about that same time, my sister, who was five years older than I was, was diagnosed with lupus. And with the health issues, the very significant health issues that we had just gone through, we knew that dad would not leave two of his three girls on the West Coast um, to go back to, to Washington, D.C. And we said, if he gets the call, we need to make this an easy decision. And therefore, we committed that we would go back as a family. Jimmy Carter did indeed call upon his friend, Cease Andrus, to serve as his Secretary of the Interior, just as his daughters suspected. It was a big family decision. That family decision alters the course of history. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Andrus is Secretary of the Interior, and at that point in time, he was made aware of the fact that our prairie falcons were flying well past that five-mile study area to the north. And so he issued a directive to the state director of the BLM to expand 
the northern boundary of the study area and the moratorium area to the extent that the prairie falcons were, were, were foraging. So that was the first action that Anders did. Andrus placed an enormous value on scientific research and demonstrated a willingness to ensure that Kokert and his team had all the resources they needed to complete their study, as evidenced by this line of questioning from Steve Stubner's archival interview with the former secretary. But now, when you were um, interior secretary, uh, Mike Kokert mentioned that you were just extremely helpful um, in terms of getting research money, uh, any support they needed from the national office, they got it. from from BLM. Yeah, yeah. There was discretionary money in the secretary's office, and I spent it in Idaho. Yep. Uh, and I spent some in Utah, down in Antelope Island. And yep. It's just brute strength and awkwardness of is if you're there in the chair and you got the title, there are certain things you can do. Right. Yeah, I mean, you can't take it all, but but I made certain that they had what they needed, and I was wanting to see that that area protected. Most elected office holders want to be around to do their brand of good the next day. And sometimes you have to be willing to make a decision that says, I'm not sure if I'm going to be around after the next election cycle, but I need to do what I think is right now. And, um, and Dad did that on multiple occasions. Andrus's decision to expand the study area based on the prairie falcon behavior that Cokert and others were observing was critically important. The expansion of the study area meant an expansion of the moratorium on pursuing agricultural interests in the area. One of the objectives of the study was to assess the impacts of converting the native range to irrigated agriculture. Because one of the things about the deep productive soils, well, these deep productive soils are highly sought after for irrigated agriculture. It was very unpopular. There were a lot of desert land entries and carry act applications uh, to farm those lands, pump out of the Snake River. And uh, well, a lot of people had applications in and, and were very unhappy with us. While FLIPMA repealed the Homesteading Act, it didn't repeal the Desert Land Act of 1877 or the Carry Act of 1894. And it is actually still theoretically possible to acquire land from the federal government through this process. In the 1970s, there was a small but vocal group who thought they could irrigate the land north of the Snake River Canyon using new pumping technology, privatize it, and develop it for agriculture. Because, you know, we were looking at this unique population and this land was being highly sought after for irrigated agriculture, that was one of the major objectives of the BLM, is how compatible was this with the unique raptor population. My real contribution, I feel, to the whole the special research report and, and getting everything established was really in the analysis, in the office rather than in the field. Um, there were lots of good field biologists out there. They just kind of dumped the data when it came back into the office, and I was the one who was who had to make sense of it. And so um, that's what I did. It started like I got there. Okay, we've got to stop having these make parts. We've got to hook up to a mainframe. We've got to start automating this data, which did involve key punch cards, by the way. 
But anyway, our contact in the BLM state office was a man named Lowell Dahl. And so I was always constantly bugging him for equipment and software. And he did. finally he said, why don't you just go get married and have kids and get out of my face? <laughs> mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. But we did get computers. And we did hook up first to the Bureau of Reclamation's cyber mainframe and then we then BLM finally got its own mainframe a Honeywell While Kokert, Steenhoff and the rest of the biologists were conducting research Morley and Andrus were building political alliances and working with BLM district manager Dean Bibles on a scheme to boost the area's public exposure We set up a a float trip we float down spend the night camp uh, just above uh, uh, Swan Falls Dam on that opening there, uh, Robert Redford came out to go on the float trip. My, my job was to go out there ahead of time and, and help the guys from Utah pump up the rafts. That's the voice of Wally Meyer, a recreation and public affairs specialist with the BLM. So we, we spent a day getting these big, humongous rafts pumped up. There was two or three of them. And then I, re- I recall that the helicopter came in and Redford and and Andrus got out, you know, and they were smiling, and they, they, they hopped in the rafts and everything. And I, I can recall hollering, put on your life jackets, and, and then they floated off. <laughs> As a matter of fact, we did a trip down the Snake River through that, the Birds of Prey area. I got Bob Redford in here, and it was, uh, it was a fundraising trip to, uh, to generate funds for that purpose. And Morley did some of his magic down there? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, he... He did his little dances, and his birds did their flying, and Morley did his dialogue. And when Morley gets to doing a dialogue, sometimes it takes all day and all night. Every once in a while, you need a hook to pull him off the stage. That's right. But uh, he's a hell of a guy. After the presentations down there on the river, uh, Secretary Andrus uh, told the director of the BLM was there, and I was there. On the, and he says, I want to talk to you guys over here. They had, we, had a t- we had different tents. Redford didn't want a tent. He just wanted to sleep out on the ground with everybody else. But Secretary had a tent, and he says, I want you guys over here in the tent. I want to talk to you. So we got in there, and uh, Cease was always pretty direct. <laughs> Anybody that knew him, he said, okay, Bibles, I know what you've been t- You've been talking about some sick-something of Flipma, to, for this area, what the heck, what the hell are you talking about? And I, of course, at that time, I had my little handy-dandy flip my book, and I knew I'd be asked some questions, so I flipped this thing out, and I said, here, I want you to see, Section 602 of FLIPMA set aside the California desert, and I think I'm right on this, Section 603 set aside the King Range in, in California's national conservation areas, and I says, I think that we should have another 6-0-whatever under this Title VI. We should have this area. That's, that's a place you can hook to the Federal Land Policy and Management Act and, and have this area. But C said, damn, I wish I'd have known about this earlier. Bibles had honed in on a key provision of the Federal Lands and Policy Management Act. Under this legislation, the Secretary of the Interior could bypass Congress and set aside public land for protection by performing a temporary administrative withdrawal. In FLIPMA, there is the provision that says that the Secretary has the right for 20-year withdrawals. 
if they are not enacted by the Congress within that 20-year period, it goes back to the way it was. They, the withdrawal becomes null and void. This was 1978, and the Raptor Research Project was nearing its end. We released the EIS and the Special Research Report in 1979. There were a few goals to, of our, our report to establish the uniqueness of the area, to establish the spatial needs, and to determine... Uh, whether agriculture was compatible or incompatible with the raptor's needs. The report came out and said that as far as prairie falcons were concerned, the main species that formed the area, granted that certain species like red tails can handle uh, farming, but this conversion, immediate conversion from native range to irrigated agriculture was not compatible with prairie falcons. 1980 was an election year. So you, it didn't take a rocket scientist to figure no action, even though Andrus was trying to get some legislation going. There was not a sense of urgency in my mind early on because I thought there was plenty of time. Yeah. I thought Carter would be reelected, and I knew that we had, no, we had to do all these studies and everything to prepare at first. Right. And uh, I guess I didn't really push as hard as I should have, maybe. Then we know what happened on November 4, 1980. The time has come. You've seen the map. We've looked at the figures, and NBC News now makes its projection for the presidency. Reagan is our projected winner, Ronald Wilson Reagan. I just remember being pretty shocked that Reagan won, almost, almost as shocked as I was that Trump won. Dad had a list of things he wanted to accomplish while he was back there. And um, he was pretty good at figuring out how to get done the things that you're not supposed to be able to get done. <laughs> you know, he, he, he usually could find a way around a roadblock. And, and he did that with the Alaska Lands Bill, and he did that with the, um, with the Birds of Prey area. A few days later, and I can't recall, it was darn close after the election, I get this call. He said, Dean, this is Cease. I said, yes. He says, you know what we got to do on those, that Birds of Prey area? And I says, I think I do, but I want you to tell me specifically what you want. And he says, I want to do one of those withdrawals. How long can I get? And I says, 20 years is the maximum. He said, I want a 20-year withdrawal done. And I want it done as soon as you can get it done. And I says, okay, I know what you want. And, um, yeah, almost immediately we were sent scurrying. It was more the lands people who had to, because they they decided they were going to withdraw the area before Cecil Andrus left uh, office as secretary. And so they had to do all the legal descriptions, which hadn't been done. And, oh, God, I can remember them just... All night long, they were doing legal descriptions, and we were scurrying around. And so I did, I wrote the withdrawal. And it was kind of interesting because the Secretary of Interior has a working office and a ceremonial office. For some strange reason, Cease has come into the ceremonial office, sit at the couches with the coffee tables. Dad was never one to stand on ceremony. Mm -hmm. It was just not his... That wasn't his thing. Pomp and circumstance weren't important to him. We sat down, and, and he said, okay, what do you got for me? He sat there and looked at it, and 
said, yeah, this is what I want. Give me your pen. And I said, before you sign that, you need to know I've not had a legal review. I've not had any surnames. You normally, everything went to the secretary, had to have half a dozen surnames. I said, it is not. And he says, do you think it's right? I said, sure. I, I wouldn't have written if I didn't think it was right. It follows. I think it follows the law, okay? He says, it's about to get the only blankety-blank surname it needs in this department. So with a flourish, he signed it. And then I said, okay, you got to sign these four letters. Under the law, you have to sign a letter to the chairman of each of the two committees, House and Senate, and then to the ranking member of those. So we had those letters. for He had to sign those. And uh, that was it. It was done. Uh, we withdrew uh, 482,000 acres for economic reasons, birds of prey reasons, National Guard reasons, all existing uses. We'll put that together. This is this is right. It needs to be done. Let's do it while we can. Exactly. He had he had been back there. He had done what he wanted to get done, mm-hmm. and he had decided that Washington D.C. was not where he wanted to be. So he was always going to come home uh, at the end of the first term. With Andrus's flourish of a pen, the protected area along the Snake River Canyon was dramatically expanded, from just over 26,000 acres to 482,000 acres. This protection, however, was temporary, and Andrus's action fueled the controversy. In early 81, the BLM was sued. It was interesting because the suit did not criticize the scientific end. They were going after the BLM more of a procedural, you know, compliance with NEPA, all this other stuff. With the the legal action taken by Sagebrush Rebellion Incorporated against the withdrawal, trying to get a, a federal court to throw the withdrawal out. I was very worried as to whether the Justice Department would defend the withdrawal, but it was my view that the professional attorneys in the Department of the Interior thought it was important that the Secretary's authority be upheld. The local federal court ruled in favor of the defendant. They appealed it to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, and they upheld the local court's decision. I think that probably the two things that that were the most critical for what we have today was Secretary Andrus personally grabbing the bull by the horns and, and, and doing that withdrawal in the fall of 1980 and the Justice Department defending that withdrawal and, and winning that in court uh, that left it in place. There are so many things that getting over the hurdle, getting something done, is, is really a big push. But once it's done and people get used to it, who is going to turn around 20 years later and say, oh no, that area shouldn't be protected, we're going to open that up? And Dad knew that. You know, he was, he was very pragmatic. And, and it's get past the screaming and, the, and, and everybody being worried about what they don't know and get to the point where you can look back after 20 years and say, this is a good thing. But I don't think that Dad would ever have put this as his accomplishment. I think he would have seen it as Morley's accomplishment and something that he helped with. So it's it's just looking at it from the lens that Dad would use, and he'd he'd never put that up as 
this is something I did. He, he would look at it as this is something I was able to help out with um, and, and make sure that this area that was developed um, through the vision of Morley Nelson could get the protection that it needed and deserved. Although Andrus's withdrawal took the effort to protect the Snake River Canyon a giant leap forward, it also intensified the controversy over agricultural development in the area. And Reagan's nominee to replace Cecil Andrus as Secretary of the Interior was not happy about the withdrawal of the Birds of Prey area, as Dean Bibles explains. Jim Watt was the Secretary of the Interior. He walked right into my office and he said, you should go find another job. And I said, why? And he said... He said, you're a protege of Cecil Anderson, and uh, you won't like working for me. And I said, Mr. Secretary, I was in Interior many, many years before Secretary Andrus came on board. And under my breath, and I said, and I'll be here when you're gone. And I was. Despite the Justice Department's successful legal defense of Andrus's secretarial withdrawal, the future of the Snake River Birds of Prey protected area remained highly uncertain at the beginning of the 1980s. The Reagan administration was not interested in expanding protected areas, and there continued to be a vocal minority intent on irrigating and privatizing the land north of the Snake River Canyon. This was a hopeful but tense period for those seeking permanent protection for the Birds of Prey area. The resolution to the long-standing dispute over agricultural interests in the area north of the Snake River Canyon was, however, right around the corner, and it would come from an unexpected source. A battle over water rights in the Snake River had been brewing for decades, and the epicenter of this battle sat right at the heart of the newly created Snake River Birds of Prey natural area. Common Land is a production of the Wild Lens Collective and Radio Boise, with support provided by the Bureau of Land Management, the Birds of Prey NCA Partnership, the Peregrine Funds, Archives of Falconry, and a grant from Patagonia. This episode was produced by Wayne Burt, Steve Alsip, and myself, your host, Matt Podolsky. Production assistance was provided by Jessica Evett, Leah Dunn, and Ragged Coyote. Music is by Like a Rocket, Ragged Coyote, and The Great Turtle. Additional audio recordings come from the Macaulay Library at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology and freesound.org. Visit our website at commonlandpodcast.com to learn more about the show and to see a full list of credits.